0: Greetings and welcome. This is Alchemy, and it's good to be back. If you're new to the show, we're free and on demand from iTunes and alchemyradio.net and you can follow us and join the Alchemy community which is growing all the time on Facebook and Twitter so don't be shy and say hello we always get back to everybody or certainly we endeavour to get back to as many people as we can we exist thanks to your kind donations so a huge thank you to everybody who donates on a regular basis and to those of you who have been so generous over the last few weeks and have assisted us in getting back up and running and producing shows on a consistent and regular basis again we intend to keep it that way So, on to the show. Alchemy. Alchemy. Our guest this week is David Matheson. David has joined me on the show in 2014. If anyone would like to check out that episode, it's number 56 on the website. And David's area of expertise is the decoding of celestial metaphor. It's a fascinating topic. We had a great chat last year, and I'm really looking forward to talking to him now again on alchemy. So, David, you're very welcome back. How are
1: things? Hi, John. Thanks very much for uh, having me on Alchemy Radio. And, and I'm really happy to be here. And congratulations to you. Also, it sounds like you've been busy with some creative. Work on your end. Yeah, the creative
0: juices have been flowing musically with me, and delighted that Alchemy is back up and running now on a regular basis and with some consistency. So uh, the stars are aligning, which is kind of (laughs) apt considering we're speaking, because the last time we spoke, it was about the undying stars. But you've a new book out which is entitled Star Myths of the World and How to Interpret Them, Volume 1. So we don't have to ask you about your background because the listeners will already be familiar with you. So tell us about the new book and what it's all about.
1: Sure. Thanks, John. The uh, the The original intention was not really to do a multi-volume work. I thought, oh, I'm going to show... Well, actually, it was interesting that it was a reader who uh, has recommended some, some great other literature that I... Uh, you know, have enjoyed looking into. In fact, he's uh, somebody who I uh, uh, email through email sent me uh, the idea of uh, learning about Peter Kingsley, who's a really fascinating scholar of ancient Greece and um, philosophy, and really beyond philosophy. But he uh, also said, you know, it'd be great if there were a way you keep putting out these. Interesting um, explications of this or that myth and how it relates to the stars, but instead of always telling us it'd be really great if you could teach people how to do that for themselves mm. and I thought that was a fantastic suggestion so that's where star myths of the world was was born was I was thinking about well how could I kind of teach a course or you know if I were to establish the department of Astrotheology somewhere um you know how how might i structure such a course well um, i don't have a department of Astrotheology set up uh right now although that'd be that'd be a great project to do someday but i i thought that it, by making a book that shows people how to do this what i would do is in the first half of the book have the myths you know each chapter would be okay here is a myth here's what happens in the story, maybe here's some pictures of you know this myth from traditional paintings or whatever, and then as we're going through, pointing out little characteristics within the myth that I would use if I were trying to say, hmm, I believe that virtually all the myths of humanity can be shown to be based upon the stars. Um, I believe that's really at this point. I wouldn't even say believe it's like beyond um it's beyond proven uh the the abundance of the evidence but of course you know i'm always open to uh i'm always open to new evidence but i've had to totally change my paradigm on that by the way as i think we may have talked about before i used to believe for instance that the scriptures of the bible were intended to be taken literally at this point Mm. there is so much evidence that shows they're related to the stars anyway the, the, as I go through the book, each chapter in the first half just talks about the myth itself and points out certain characteristic details. Hey, you might want to pay attention to this. And then at the end, I say, now you can turn to page 320 to see my interpretation of this. And that's where we find another chapter. So It's like the myths are in there twice. The first half of the book talking about the myth side, the second half of the book explaining uh, with a picture of the stars. Here's the constellations that I think are running around in this story. And to try and help the reader to kind of speak the language that the myths are speaking, which I think is a a celestial language.
0: So it's almost like a, a demonstrative manual that explores and explains the idea of celestial metaphor would that be a good summation of it?
1: That's, that's exactly right John um, I really had two intentions with the book one, to show that this is going on uh, by using myths from representative myths from virtually every continent uh, that there's been human cultures yeah. I don't know of any from Antarctica at this point but um, you know <laughs> Africa, Australia, um, Japan, China. That's why I started to say, I thought this was all going to be done in one volume and I was going to go through Africa, Australia, the Americas, the Pacific Islands, Mm. China, India, Japan, Greek myths, Norse myths, the Bible. Uh, There's no way that was going to fit in one volume, it turns out. Actually, this, this is volume one and it really covers a lot of the places that uh what what has come to be known as western culture did not get to which means western europe which grew out of the western roman empire so it's really places that the roman empire didn't conquer like hawaii or uh new, you know what we call new zealand aotearoa yeah uh, australia africa um so this this volume one starts off with um africa and australia uh the the myths of gilgamesh um, from sumer and ancient babylon some of the uh, myths of ancient egypt ancient india um and and then goes into the americas the um Pacific Island, you know, the Maya, some, some of what remains of the Maya mythology. A lot of that was deliberately overthrown and destroyed and deliberately texts were deliberately burned, which is, of course, tragic, but trying to show that this system was operating all over the world. And that, I mean, that's a king size subject right there. We could spend a, you know, a couple of hours just talking about the ramifications of that assertion, Because most academics would resist that if I, based on their paradigm, if I were to walk into a university and say hi, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to be hired as a professor. And by the way, I believe all the myths of the world are based on a very specific system that they all have in common. Um, You know, the, the person might throw me out right there, or they might say, "Wait, do you mean like there's some something in common between the Maya?" and the myths of ancient Egypt or ancient Babylon? And I say, yes, not just in common, like a little bit accidentally, but really specific details of this system can be shown to be in common. They would say, thanks, thanks very much. (laughs) That's enough, the door's right there. You know, Forgive me if I don't show you to the door.
0: Yeah, and it's very interesting. One of the things that I'm most excited about the book is the demonstrative aspect of it, because let's face it, as you alluded to earlier, David, It is quite a paradigm-shattering statement that there is the existence of an ancient system of celestial metaphor, if you like. And the fact that people can actually get into the nitty-gritty of it and can explore it for themselves instead of just somebody preaching to them, well, this is the way it is and you better accept it as fact. The fact that they actually can look towards the back of the book and they can see, well, this is why this happens and this is how this happens. I think it it's something that will help people maybe do a bit of their own research and expand on it for themselves as opposed to just reading a book and putting it putting it aside and kind of forgetting about it then. So, have you found that people have reacted to it in that way or what has the reaction been like?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great that's a great question, John. Um you know, it's it's a uh it is it is a pretty weighty tome. Uh it's about 500 pages. Like I said, I thought I was going to do this all in one uh one volume. And I thought, uh, and after I got the 500 pages, I said, you know, I think I better stop here after reaching, uh, ancient China and ancient Japan and save the next volume for the Greek myths and the Norse myths and see if I can fit those into one volume. Yeah. So my, uh, answer to your question is I'm not sure anybody's actually made it through yet. So I think people are probably still chewing on it. Hopefully. There will be positive feedback, but um, but as uh, as as the Bhagavad Gita tells us, which is is one of the um, you know beloved scriptures of the world, um, is from ancient India, and in that in that uh, myth or that that you know sacred text, Krishna keeps telling Arjun over and over, "Do what's right." Without attachment to the outcome, and that's kind of what I'm trying to do here not uh, Not that I don't care. I certainly hope that people will have a positive reaction to it. but what i uh, what I would say is that I'm glad that you I'm glad that you're excited about the demonstrative act aspect of it. There's a few different metaphors we could use, but one is that I think it's like learning a language. and mm-hmm. you know, if you don't speak a language, let's say somebody you know comes over to your house. Uh, you know, a friend of yours brings uh, a, a friend of theirs over, and that person only speaks, you know, some language that you don't know. Anybody who speaks that language, maybe Cantonese or something that's really not, uh, you know, something not in your experience at all. You don't speak a lick of Cantonese, right? And uh, and that person, it turns out, doesn't speak a lick of Irish, <laughs> or okay, American English, or whatever. And your friend. Um, maybe speaks a little bit. Uh, and so that person starts talking and says, uh, you know, maybe in their language they say, I'm really thankful for coming over to your house. Thank you for having me here. I feel a deep sense of connection to you, and um, and I really am uh, thankful for your having me over and for this food. And your friend says, oh, yeah, he just said, um, he thinks your house is a little bit shabby, and he really doesn't like <laughs> the music that you have been putting out, um, lately. I, go, I hear what? that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Your friend is lying. You see, your friend is deliberately mistranslating or your friend doesn't know what the person actually said. So he's starting to fill in the gaps. And, uh, that's what I think actually happens with some of these ancient texts is they come to us speaking a language, the language of the stars. Hmm. And most people don't speak that language. Uh, for whatever reason it's like um you know ancient egyptian was uh the knowledge of how to read those hieroglyphs was lost for centuries and as far as we know nobody preserved that knowledge it may have been preserved underground somewhere but um in general even you know scholars at the finest universities could not read the hieroglyphs and then the rosetta stone was found in And, uh, you know, it was an amazing story of how it was finally deciphered because we had finally a stone that had uh, some Greek and some hieratic and some ancient Egyptian, and then they could figure it out because of the Greek. So um, all of a sudden, Egyptian was then readable. Well, that's what we need for the myths is a Rosetta Stone. Or, you know, this book is kind of like a grammar Uh, Hey, would you like to learn this language? Then you can ask the guest, hey, you know what? I think my friend (laughs) is playing a little game with me here. I bet you didn't really say that. Hi, my name's John. Now, what did you say? And he says, oh, you speak Cantonese? That's fantastic. Well, what I said was, I love your music. It's almost
0: like a form of Chinese whispers, even if a lot of people don't necessarily have any kind of nefarious intent, um, such as your example there, whereby somebody deliberately obfuscated the information. When a story is told and it's passed on and on and on, the details do change over time and it can be a very gradual process but the end result is something completely different from where it started and when we're dealing with thousands of years and lost or hidden information it's very plain that that has happened over the years and that's why the work that you're doing is almost like the Rosetta Stone of celestial metaphor because there aren't many people doing it and you're doing it in such depth and you're now offering the reader the chance to do it for themselves or to be shown how it's done which is very, very different from a lot of, shall we say, alternative research that's out there. And like I said, that's the most exciting thing about it for me. So I think maybe if we look at one or two of the metaphors uh, to give people an example of what is contained in the book, you mentioned the Bhagavad Gita there which I think would be a very good one to, to look at as well because there are so many good examples within that story and within the, the story of Krishna that relate to daily life as is the case with a lot of these metaphors but it's one that resonates with me and the example you gave earlier was a very, very good one with regard to not getting attached to the outcome of everything that we do and to appreciate the journey so maybe we'll have a little look at that and then one or two of the other metaphors that are in the book to give people an example and to highlight what they can expect when they get their hands on it.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks. Um I, I think that is a great great place to start. I'd just like to say that um what you just said, there was just a ton of uh insightful and interesting directions uh uh of what you just said. It it's interesting to me that you said it's like a game of Chinese whispers because over here, if you said I can kind of guess what you're talking about, but over here I think the game we're talking uh we're both talking about, they call it telephone. Oh so okay. It's, okay. it's funny that, you know, there's even little language um, you know differences and language is an interesting subject that we can maybe loop back into this conversation if we get to it um, mm-hmm. with this bit about uh, Krishna and Arjun um, but so so th- as I was saying this book does cover ancient India and ancient China and I think it's, it's actually very interesting that many in the West you know beginning with the you know the 1960s in you know, a large large numbers but Uh, certainly even before that you had people turning to the traditions of the east to try and find something that they felt wasn't present anymore or that they felt you know hey i think we're going in the wrong direction here we're destroying uh the environment or we're you know or i just feel uh that these you know things that i'm being taught aren't speaking to me spiritually but when i uh listen to this Yogi, um, you know, who's teaching me yoga, when I ask him or her about these things, I get these answers that just really make me want to learn more. Why is that? Well, and we can we can set set that question aside for a minute, but that's a very interesting uh, phenomenon that is a real phenomenon that that ties into the fact that I think that the you know the scriptures we have, I do think, uh, are teaching. A lot of those same things but have been um uh, that that message has has been obscured by the um, tendency to take them literally which is very deeply rooted in western uh western culture uh, for sure even you know in the united states to this day so um but setting that aside the uh the the myth of krishna and arjun is part of a larger Uh, a larger epic which is a fantastic epic called the you know and and somebody who speaks sanskrit will will say you know that guy's saying it all wrong (laughs) but it's the Mahabharat. it's actually i think supposed to be pronounced more like ma i had someone um who's a sanskrit scholar when i said oh the Mahabharat, right you don't say the last a the a is silent i thought i was so So advanced, and he said it's Mahabharat. Okay. Uh, Anyway, uh, it's the you know if we looked at the the word on the page, it would look like Mahabharata. Yeah. Anyway, that long epic, which is uh, by itself longer than the Odyssey and the Iliad combined, um, it's seven times longer than those two put together. It's a really exciting, fantastic available online in english translation from the 1800s there's some kind of updated translations of it that are more accessible kind of in modern language fantastic story about the the five sons of pandu who are uh, arjun is one of them another one is bima and like i said i'm probably saying the names not quite perfectly if someone from India would say oh he's not quite saying that right but anyway these are these interesting characters kind of like Hercules or um, you know Jason and the Argonauts from ancient Greece mm-hmm. and Arjun is one of them he's a great bowman he's got a fantastic skill with a bow mm-hmm. and there's going to be this great tremendous battle kind of like the Trojan War the Greeks versus the Trojans in the Trojan War which I believe is a completely Celestial metaphor. Same thing. I believe that in the Mahabharat, this great battle on the plain of Kurukshetra between these cousins—they're—they're they're actually fighting the Pandus. They're fighting their cousins, the Kuru's, uh, the karavas They're all descended from Parat or Bharat, which actually Maha means great, like the Maharishi or the Maharaja, mm-hmm. and Bharat. It's interesting. I haven't actually looked into this. Bharat is one of the brothers of Rama. There's another Indian epic, Sanskrit epic, the Ramayana. Stop me if I go on too many tangents here, but one of his brothers is named Bharat. Well, it's interesting because you're in Great Britain. Um, I don't know if there's a connection there, but Bharat, Maha Bharat means great family of Bharat or the great it's like great broth it's interesting because there's a little bit of a linguistic connection there anyway I've gone pretty far afield on my No
0: I think that's very interesting though as well because uh, there is no doubt the more I look into linguistics and the use of green language and that kind of thing there's no doubt that languages are even they can seem so far removed there is always some kind of connection and quite often as your work demonstrates it comes back to celestial metaphor and let's face it back in ancient times The sky was much more readily acceptable because people didn't live in the same kind of light pollution at night that we do with big cities and electricity and that kind of thing. They had different forms of technology and they used the stars all the time and far more aware than those of us, certainly in modern Western culture, would be on average. So, no, I think that's a good point that you bring up.
1: Well, and it's, it's it, you know, like I said, it's something you, you could go, you could spend a lifetime just studying one of these epics. But anyway, um, yeah, what you said about the stars, I mean, it gets dark now in the wintertime here, about 4.30. Nobody would be staying up till 2 a.m. looking at a, a computer screen uh, back, in, back in those days, but they could go outside and just see the dazzling. And it's, I think it's just a fantastic um, Hobby or, or um, additional window to add to your life, if you're at all able to do it, to get out to um, a dark place. If you can do it every night, that's really the best. If you can go about the same time each night, because then you will start to become familiar with the progression of the stars throughout the year, which is part of this whole language. Is that you know? Right now, Orion is just dominating in the in the prime time viewing hours between sundown and midnight. I mean, Orion is just this glorious constellation with the most bright stars, um, you know, per, per count and per capita mm-hmm. of any constellation out there. But then during the summer, you're going to have the Scorp- Scorpio is going to be up instead of Orion at the same time of night. So that's, um, just fantastic. Additional, inexpensive basically free thing hobby that you can add into your life that i think it just you know if you can walk your dog at the same time each night and get a view of each of the different horizons as you maybe take a round trip back to your house that's a great way to become familiar kind of with all the stars in the different directions but uh um yeah uh so i think they were more more attuned to the stars and also i just throw this in we can come back to it or not yeah finding the constellations can be frustrating I'm not going to uh, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it it's just not easy to say oh yeah that's a crab or that's Virgo the virgin does not or Libra the scales does not really leap out of the sky at you orion does leap out of the sky at you everyone can look at that and say whoa that's a warrior look at that um, or that's a you know a giant whatever um, but some of the constellations are pretty tricky to see and the diagrams that were given that we are given are not that helpful even in this modern age if you go on like wikipedia or something the outlines for a constellation will often be totally unhelpful
0: Mm, i agree fully it's really really difficult
1: and yeah and so um i was really really blessed uh, as a child my dad got me these books by an author called h a Ray, who most people if I said that in the context of stars wouldn't know who I was talking about, but if I said that's the author along with his wife Margaret Ray of uh, do you know curious George is there is that you the go game? yeah it's curious George's creator, I knew it rang bell yeah, and he's also you know he and his wife made curious George and he also illustrated a book about how to see the stars one for children that's the first one my dad got me and then one that's called the stars a new way to see them and in that book it was first published in 50 1952 he laments the uh outlining system that we have he says you know this isn't really very helpful not easy to remember it when you go out you know these diagrams that were given if you look up in the sky you don't see that uh these these outlines that some people have offered don't really help i'm going to come up with a way well he did and not only did, did he come up with a way i'm not sure he wasn't in touch with some ancient uh wisdom somehow because his the characteristics when you use his outlines then these characteristics that are in all of the myths start to jump out at you so and we'll get we'll finally get back to krishna and uh the Bhagavad Gita (laughs) Mm -hmm. but for instance the arm of Virgo Virgo has some distinctive features to her she's an extremely important constellation she's in the zodiac she comes up in this volume 1 quite a bit volume 2 I'm getting into some other um, constellations that didn't even uh, show up in volume 1 but Virgo is a really central figure she's got an outstretched arm and this outstretched arm of Virgo shows up in a lot of different myths sometimes she is um wielding a sword sometimes she has her arm reached out to let's say pluck the fruit off maybe a tree of knowledge yep okay sometimes she may be reaching out to hand that fruit to her husband adam um so that distinctive feature of virgo if you understand that she's got this outstretched arm then you can start to see in a myth if they say you know then she reached out her hand and took such and such you go huh i wonder if they're giving me a hint there she reached out her hand i wonder if they're trying to point me to virgo as opposed to say the constellation andromeda so that's just um um a plug for using H.A. Ray's outlines, Um, I think everybody should get those books on their bookshelf.
0: Well, I'm Uh, just looking, David, here online at the moment, on on the Wikipedia page for H.A. Ray, if anybody clicks on star charts, it has a comparison between the traditional diagrams and his versions and it's absolutely incredible to see, A, the difference, but it also links how they make complete sense. It's almost like (laughs) Whoever came up with the traditional diagrams deliberately stripped out half of the information to make it difficult. The difference is incredible. I'm really looking forward to trying to apply this.
1: So, John, it, what you just said is the same reaction I had. It's like, wait a minute. These things, these traditional diagrams are so bad. Was somebody trying to make sure that we couldn't see that the myths are based on these constellations? Yeah, it's because incredible. The you know, the 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 outline of... The constellation of the whale, for instance, looks nothing like a whale the way it's usually drawn. Or Perseus, Hmm. Perseus, the famous hero who, you know, slew Medusa. Well, you know, for those who are queasy about the fact that he slew Medusa, you don't have to worry. I don't believe it actually literally happened. I believe it's something that's going on in the stars. But the diagram of Perseus, the way he's usually drawn, If you go out in the sky, he's up right now. He's a fantastic, brilliant constellation. He's right near the brilliant, dazzling Pleiades in the sky. He's a great friend to get to know. Once you can find his outline, then if you go into the night sky when Perseus is up, you'll say, oh, there's Perseus. Oh, how are you doing? Perseus, Hmm. great great to see you. But if you you go with the Wikipedia diagram that you usually see for Perseus, you would be like, Wait a minute. Where is he again? I can't, I can't even remember how he's supposed to look. Yeah. And the whale doesn't look anything like a whale. But with H. A. Ray, you go. Oh, look! It's a whale with a big, giant, yawning mouth. And what's really interesting is then you can go back to Greek pottery, ancient Greece, 500 B.C. And there's Perseus next to this yawning head, and you go, oh, well, that's the whale. Look at that. That that painter must have known. You know. And, and he lived a long time before H. A. Ray. So how did H. A. Ray? That's an interesting subject for another day. So let's get into the, the Mahabharat yeah. and the Bhagavad Gita. That I took. I took a long time to get there. But within the Mahabharat or Mahaparat, there is this great battle that's going to finally take place. And the, the sons of Pandu have been really wronged by their cousins, by their uncle, who's the king and they have had to endure all these different kind of humiliations and um setbacks but they bear them all with great you know they're just like the kinds of uh the kinds of examples you'd want to set in front of your your kids your children and say you know try and be like these characters these characters in the Mahabharat, not those those guys over there you don't want to be like uh the, the the bad guy side, but anyway, there's this great battle that's going to finally take place, and on the eve of the battle, Arjun, who is um, he, is so powerful. He's actually gone up to the celestial realms and received all these different celestial weapons. Which that's a whole another interesting subject. That these these weapons, the stars are some kind somehow a weapon um, that the gods can give to humanity I think they're spiritual weapons um, for our spiritual benefit Mm -hmm. Um, they could also be misused I guess uh, like any weapon right But uh, so Arjun is this super tremendously powerful warrior and on the last the night before the battle he's he's going you know what I don't even think I want to get into this battle I don't want to fight against my uncles and my cousins I know I'm going to end up slaying all of my relations because i'm so powerful and um prior to the battle krishna the lord krishna shri krishna has um has said to both sides hey you know i really want you guys to settle this without fighting um but if if the kurus insist on war i want both sides I, i really love you both choose one side i'll give you a million of my warriors one side i'll go over to that side and help them but i won't fight for them i'll just be in a non-combatant role and of course the bad guy cousin immediately says give me the million warriors i'm thank you very much um well actually uh i said that wrong krishna says arjun you get to pick first and arjun says well i'd much rather have you with me krishna than a million warriors and his cousin the leader of the other side who's caused all these problems. The, the text says he smiled inside because he's like, How could Arjun be so stupid? Thank goodness, I get the million warriors. So Krishna acts as the charioteer for Arjun. Um, like, uh, like Mahabharata, the last day I think is silent, it's spelled Arjuna. Okay. You may have seen that. But anyway, he's this great bowman, but they fight from these kind of war chariots. And Krishna is going to be his charioteer so in this uh, scene the, the, the battle lines are drawn up and, and Arjun says you know Krishna uh, bring me in between the battle lines here I want to look around you know I think I'm just going to throw my weapons away and I don't care if they just kill me in the first few minutes I don't want to fight I'm, I think this is horrible and Krishna says listen Arjun um in this life we, ha- we have to do our duty, and uh, we have to do what 's right, and we have to not be attached to the outcome and He basically says that a million different ways or eighty different ways um, and he says it 's actually your destiny is to fight in this battle, and um, what I want you to remember is don 't be attached to the outcome whether don 't do it for personal gain and don't um, don't worry if things don't go the way that they're supposed to go so that's a one level of the message of the Bhagavad Gita and then it just goes down about a million more levels from there um, and what I'll say is also um, there's a very clear celestial metaphor Arjun is a constellation Krishna is a constellation I believe and I, and I show you the evidence in the book and I've actually shown this on my blog as well um, some of the things in the book I have written about before on my blog and then I maybe elaborate elaborating further. Some of the things in the book, of course, are just brand new myths that I haven't talked about anywhere before. Yeah. But, um, the, 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 the battle cart that's drawn by the horses, um, that's in the stars, the banner, there's a very distinctive banner. I don't know how familiar you are with the, um, myths of ancient india you might know that arjun when he has krishna as his charioteer they have a special banner on top of the uh the battle chariot you know what's on there
0: yeah i've seen i've seen pictures now i'm not overly familiar with it but i have seen on top of it there's one with the uh with the crescent moon um and then it looks like the full moon to me and there's another one which I haven't been fully able to make out, but there's some kind of entity or being or, or yeah. creature on it as well, on the other right. side. The
1: entity or being or creature that is usually depicted there is, uh, and maybe I'm not pronouncing this right either, but I'll just say Hanuman, yeah. or Hanuman, the the monkey god, who's a very powerful god, and he plays a big role in the uh, Ramayana, the other ancient Ved, uh, Sanskrit text. Mm. Anyway, that... Identifies where we are in the sky, so those those actual um, details in the story help us to see that it's a celestial metaphor. But then, you know, then we can get into well, what does it mean? But I'll stop there, not not to rush too far ahead of myself. That's basically the whole Bhagavad Gita is Krishna talking to Arjun, saying, "Listen, you actually have to do this. It's you have to go into this battle." Don't become attached to the outcome, just do what's right that and and I believe you know that this so I'll just say at the outset, I believe this whole battle is a metaphor. It's not saying, okay, let's go to war and don't worry about the outcome. That's absolutely not what I'm talking about here in fact, you know the 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 pan pandu the five sons of Pandu make it very clear they don't want war, they're very willing to uh not have war. This is not a pro war epic it's a celestial metaphor just like the trojan war mm. where the greeks represent a certain part of the heavenly cycles and the trojans represent a certain part of the heavenly cycles same thing in the Mahabharata. the sons of pandu represent the, i believe the months of the year when the sun is on its way up when the days are getting longer than the nights and daytime is triumphing over nighttime and the other guys, they represent the part of the year where night triumphs over day. Well, it's it's right for us to have that part of the year where night triumphs over day, but it would be, uh, they'd be usurping their authority if they said, hey, and we never want to let day have its time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's basically what they're saying. And so the, the sons of Pandu say, look, you've got to give us it will just take five cottages we'll just take five little huts just give us that back and we won't go to war with you which might be like the five summer months but um they, they basically say we don't want to fight but you know <laughs> but uh anyway there's this big battle is i believe a celestial metaphor
0: and you did mention then what does it mean or why but I'll I'll give you my take on it as you've been speaking there and as you've been describing it and I was just kind of correlating it with some of the old Celtic myths that I would have been familiar with growing up in Ireland. A lot of it seems to come back to the adage which many, many people think there's something sinister about it, as above, so below, which would be espoused by many secret societies around the world down through the ages. And it's almost like all of this information, when I gather it together in my head, My reaction to it is that what's written in the stars is like a plan, a life plan for us that all comes back to natural law. And it's a blueprint for how we should do the right thing to elevate our consciousness. It's like a map of consciousness and what we should do with it to have the best outcome, both on a personal level and for humanity and, I suppose the universe at large, it all seems to me to be a kind of a, a non-dualistic metaphor for how we should live our lives and what we're here for and what we're here to do. And it's the complete antithesis of what Western culture certainly as somebody who has grown up within Western culture, what that represents and what it is. And there is a conspiratorial aspect because we've already spoken there or or alluded to at least how some of the message may have been deliberately hidden in the past or it almost seems like that. I think for those who may have an agenda, if the powers that be or the powers that shouldn't be with an agenda are out there, it's certainly in their interests to obfuscate that message and to hide the plan and the blueprint. Because if we're able to decode it, as you do in your work, There is a very, very powerful message for how we should live our lives there and it doesn't in any way tally with how those powers that shouldn't be want us to do it because there's no benefit to them. We're not going to have war. We're not going to have these systems of control that exist currently and that we've all grown up with and that most people seem to accept. I think it's really, really powerful. And that's the message that your work, and again, I'm just reminded of it as you speak. That's the message that I have taken from your work over the last kind of 18 months since it first came to my attention. Would you agree with me there? Would you totally disagree? Or any of the feedback that you do receive to your work, would it correlate with any of it?
1: Those are some great Insights and sentiments you just expressed, John. I, um, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think you made some really insightful points there. I would say, I think maybe the last time I'm, it's a metaphor I use quite a bit, but the original Karate Kid, you know, where Mr. Miyagi is teaching Daniel San, mm. he uses metaphors essentially, or he uses an esoteric means of teaching him Karate. Look, Daniel needs help. He needs help. He's, you know, he's he's in California. He's moved to California from New Jersey, and he's getting beat up all the time. Yeah, Mr. Miyagi teaches him karate. Well, um, he teaches him by making him wax the car. Wax on, wax off. I mean, it's like this really powerful scene. And, I, and not to rehash too much of the same real estate that we already went over in the last show, but, um, but I think... It's a great metaphor because if somebody said, you know what, we can't have all the Daniels out there in the world knowing karate. Let's tell them that these motions are all about just waxing the car. Hey, you know, Danielson, that guy, Mr. Miyagi, he's trying to trick you. He's a sinister figure. Don't believe him when he says this means something else. You're just being his... Car waxer, and he and these motions are nothing more than waxing a car and yeah. painting the fence. And don't get any funny ideas in your head that they're actually about karate. And well, Daniel needs karate, and to do that would be to leave him at the mercies of the, this gang that's uh preying upon him or beating him up. There's actually some funny videos on YouTube where people have said, Wait a minute, Daniel seems to be the instigator in all these fights, maybe he's the bad guy, <laughs> but uh, anyway, the metaphor being like you said there may have been a point in time where this was known and in fact i alluded to peter kingsley at the beginning he he keeps saying look the west is out of control um and and i'll say i don't want to put words in his mouth and, and go read his stuff for yourself it's fantastic listen to his lectures but he says there's something deeply wrong with western culture and we all sense it what is it we've lost contact with our original instructions but it's not like we never had any you don't actually have to go to the uh you know ancient china and Taoist texts or ancient india to get what you don't have although at least over there the stream wasn't interrupted but the problem here is we have to get back to our original instructions and this was known in ancient greece this was known i would say in ancient egypt this was known in ancient Ireland you know it's we could talk about the story of the dun cow I don't know how you say it but you know the uh the, the the um the the myths of ancient Ireland are also celestial in nature you can see this anyway they are talking not about the stars but about profound spiritual truths it's like they're trying to teach us karate for our life that's really um beneficial to us so i'll tell you um you know just one part of what you said i would agree with you about we've lost connection to something these things are not sinister uh they're actually i believe a tremendous treasure that was given to humanity for our benefit mm. and then it, we can get into what i believe you know some of the layers of what like you said you know uh, the as above so below and the, the our raising our own consciousness things that we in our own life yeah you know, I, I believe these things are very practical they're not just um you know i say just it, they're not just about esoteric which obviously that's very important it's not just about your spiritual you know really higher spiritual needs it's also about hey what if i'm having trouble because I'm always getting into arguments with my teenage son you know and I tend to fly off the handle well <laughs> you know you don't like that about yourself? No I don't I really afterwards I feel terrible. well the these you know these treasures that we're given help us to to overcome these kinds of um, or they give us kind of a roadmap for really practical aspects of our life and the the part about arjun, and having this divine charioteer, Krishna, the Lord Krishna, is Arjun's charioteer. And in the metaphor, there's another, there's a Vedic text, one of the Upanishads, the Katha Upanishad, or the Katha Upanishad, comes right out and says, listen, in this, there's a metaphor of your mind and your body, um, your body and your emotions are kind of like the horses, that are that uh your emotions and your um senses they're like horses that'll pull your chariot all these different directions and the mind is like the reins to guide the horses yeah okay i can get you know i can i can see that's an interesting metaphor and and people's um people might say yeah i kind of i like that there's mind and there's body and you know a girl you can say well she's really beautiful but I really love her for her mind you know I want to get to know her mind and and that's like saying I want to get to know her for who she is but wait a minute this is saying that the mind is only the reins well the reins don't actually guide the horses who's driving this thing right yeah in other words it's saying your mind is actually not even who you are when we say oh she loves me for my mind or he loves her for her mind we're trying to say she loves her for who she really is, deeply is, but this is actually saying there's something even higher than your mind. Your mind is an important tool, but even it can help uh, can allow the horses to run off the cliff. Your mind sometimes is actually the problem. You, what you need is to get in touch with your higher self. That's the divine charioteer that's guiding the chariot. And, and we actually all have that. And I would say the Bible is actually talking about that too, the higher self and getting in touch with your higher self. And we can bring that back to a, a metaphor that's in the Bible if, if, uh, if you want me to support that assertion. But let's keep it with the Bhagavad Gita. Yep. There, is, there is a time when our mind, our mind is useful. Nobody would say, hey, we don't want to have a... Um, a rational capability we don't want to be able to do math problems we don't want to be able to remember telephone numbers or whatever but we don't want to uh, even have doubts doubts can actually be helpful if i leave the house and i'm getting ready to go somewhere and i say wait a minute i i'm not positive that i turned off the stove burner when i was heating up that coffee i better go back and look and you go back and look and you go oh uh, yeah i turned it off i guess just a stupid doubt i'm always doubting a little too much well, that doubt can actually be good. It could save you from burning down your house if you actually did leave the stove on. Yeah. So we don't want to get rid of all doubts. But if you're playing a game of soccer or you're surfing a 30-foot wave or something, we all know that if you doubt the whole time, well, you'll probably you know, get hurt. <laughs> if you're trying to surf a big wave and you're just letting your doubts run away with you, you'll, you'll wipe out every single time. You've got to get to that higher place, you've got to get in touch with your higher self, and we've all had that experience where we're like, "Whoa, on that wave, I don't know who was surfing it. Yeah it you're, was, you're, you're it in the a, zone like yeah, yeah, I was in the zone. And the Bhagavad Gita would say, "That's right, your higher self took over. Krishna was driving the chariot at that point. He was steering the reins of your your mind is only the reins, and your mind can actually be." um an unhelpful office assistant. This was uh there was a psychologist named uh Dara, Dr. Dara Westrup. She's she was on a, a video I saw and she's she's a practicing psychologist and she says, and this was really helpful to me when I saw this video, my wife actually showed it to me. She says, you know, our minds are kind of like a helpful office assistant that's always trying to give suggestions and sometimes the suggestions just aren't that helpful when things are just going crazy in the office and you can maybe think of the TV series, The Office, and I know they had a different one over there than they had over here, but, yeah. um, you know, they're <laughs> like the, the, the leader of The Office over here in the U.S. is Michael Scott, and he doesn't always come up with the best ideas. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes by his own kind of ridiculousness, there's almost an inspired Aspect to it, but sometimes he's like he's throwing gasoline on the fire. He's just making it worse Well, our mind is like that. It's like an unhelpful office assistant. Sometimes it's like well, why don't you do this? Well, why don't you do this and there has to be part of us that can maybe step even above that and say you know what? Thanks for your suggestion. I know you're just trying to help But that would be really stupid right now or I'm not gonna drive back to the house seven times to check that I turned off the stove Yeah, if I did that I'd be crazy Right, You can let your mind run away with you. We all know this. So if we have to get into And it's a real thing. Your higher self is a real phenomenon. I mean, there's these videos on the web of, you know, like famous dad catches where a dad who's like asleep on the couch and moms do it too. In fact, my wife, there's a story about how she did this where the guy's asleep on the couch. He puts out his hand in the, and catches the baby like at the last second that's about to fall off and you're looking at the video and you're like that guy was asleep or half asleep and his hand just went out by itself and saved that baby yeah amazing and, and those kinds of things it's like well who did that well, it was his higher self who told you to go check the stove because it was on well maybe it was your higher self not your unhelpful mind i mean there's there's times in fact in interpreting these myths where i'm like where did that come from how did i have that insight who had that insight i don't even think You know, I'd like to take credit for that insight, but I don't think I can. It's like it came to me from another world. And probably as a musician, you've had that experience.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there are times where a song will seem to materialize in the space of a couple of hours. And you could have spent two months previously on something and you were banging your head against a wall. And all of a sudden, something seems to appear from nowhere. And I remember listening to an interview. Most people would be familiar with the song by Queen, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. And many, many music critics over the years would have speculated. I mean, how was that song ever written? It's like no other song that has ever been written before or since... And in an interview, Freddie Mercury and Brian May were talking about the writing of the song and they said it was almost like they became possessed. The song seemed to come from nowhere. They wrote it really quickly and bang, it becomes one of the biggest songs of all time. And that's repeated throughout the music industry time and time again with any kind of a creative aspect. You'd hear sports stars speak about it. I remember Roger Federer, the tennis star, another interview that I heard with him and how he says when he's playing his best tennis, He barely remembers the games. It's like the blink of an eye. He just reacts and doesn't even know how it's happening. And he tries to quieten his mind during games so that he's not thinking about what he's doing and he's just feeling it and letting it happen. And I can totally relate to that in a creative sense with regard to music. And obviously, you've just described that you do the same when you're doing your work. And I think a lot of it is... When it comes to the higher self, it's about the balance between left and right brain and it becomes more than the sum of its part, parts. It's almost like the pineal gland is activated, the third eye becomes alive and real. And so much of Western culture seems to me to be designed to prevent that happening. So we become trapped in the left brain or we become trapped in the right brain. I think a huge amount of the the New Age movement is designed to do that because so, so many people over the last, say, decade or two decades are they've become more aware of a spiritual side to themselves and as a result it's almost like that has been hijacked again to get people to go too far to either side or the other and things become polarised and they can't activate that zone or that X factor or whatever people want to call it the third eye and I think you've described it really really well there and I think your work ties that together I think your work is a representation of that process and a decoding of how we are being shown that process in this case in the stars and through celestial metaphor
1: yeah thanks and I I really you know I think that these ancient texts are telling us that and it's real like you just said Roger Federer or Freddie Mercury they've had that experience it's not this isn't just like Oh, this is, you know, interesting academic stuff. This is stuff that we need for our life. Mm. And whatever you want to call it, getting in touch with Krishna or your higher self. And it's not just a male higher self, by the way, before the battle, uh, before the Bhagavad Gita, the last uh, chapter right before the Bhagavad Gita, they go to see the goddess Durga, who's still a very big goddess in Indian culture to this day. Mm. And she... um, gives arjun some advice as well and what's really interesting is these gods and goddesses always appear instantly it's like you do a mantra and they're there or you say you say a mantra and they appear instantly why is that what are they trying to tell us with that they were already there you already have access to this other realm uh and these higher aspects uh you already have that that connection if you just um kind of know how to get in touch with him there's all different kinds of techniques that have been given to us to do that but she says to arjun um you know in this battle you cannot fail uh you you will succeed and i um take the i I think one of the spiritual meanings out of that is this battle is like Arjun is going down into life, into this incarnate life. We're, we're all we're all incarnate in this body, and we know there's something more to us than just the physical. There is some, not I mean, we there there must be something that is animating the body, and so as we go down into this this incarnate life to learn these different lessons, we actually cannot fail. Well, that's a very comforting. It's like Gandalf says to Frodo or to Pippin, I guess. And that's a very comforting thought, don't you think? You know, before this great battle, yeah. they're there on the walls of Gondor, and he says. <laughs> and that's a very comforting thought, don't you think? You know, so uh, that's what Durga tells Krishna, that, you know, that the, the goddess is there with him, and he's not going to fail. It, it may look like uh, that was failing, but actually, no, that's part of your incarnate Existence, you you didn't actually fail, and you will eventually succeed. And maybe it takes ten incarnations. I don't know. But um, the uh, the the point being that these are really essential instructions, and you don't need me to tell you what they mean. What what I uh, hope and envision is that people will go to the text themselves and say, "Hey, this is fascinating. I'm seeing these in a whole new way. I'm able to." Um, relate to them in a whole new way now that I realize that they're esoteric and they're trying to tell me something now I can go to that myth about Perseus and the Gorgon and Medusa and ask it what it means and and meditate on it because now I know hey this isn't really supposed to be a, a story that stops with there was this hero and he cut off the head of Medusa no it actually has some deep spiritual meaning for you it's actually about your journey it's actually about your metaphorical battle here on earth um, so, uh, I think that it's in, in, intensely practical um, as well as um, essential to 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 turn to these, you know, myths. And and uh, the last thing I'll say on on that particular point is that's how Mr. Miyagi taught Daniel San. By the way, he didn't say, "Hey, when this kick is coming at your head." hold up your arm at just this uh, angle and make this kind of circle as if you were waxing a car and do it at about this speed and about this height and stop your hand right here. Because then what would happen? Daniel's doubting mind would go, wait a minute, would that really work? I'm not sure that would stop. Uh, Have you seen how Johnny kicks? He kicks really hard. Yeah. Um, What if he does this instead of kicking? All these doubts would crowd in and get in the way mr miyagi goes right to the source he bypasses all that and he does it using metaphors he says let's wax the let's wax the car and that doubting part of daniel's mind goes to sleep and then it it, because that doubting part of her mind is useful for some things but not for everything maybe not for writing songs or writing or playing tennis or or, or doing other certain things, it's got its purpose, but it, it should not be driving the chariot. We don't want Michael Scott of The Office driving our chariot. We want the higher self doing that. So, um, so that's kind of where I would, that's what I would say on that point.
0: No, I think that's very, very powerful. And for those people who do like to get quite analytical about things, and you've, you've described perfectly how the mind is a very useful tool. Provided it's used correctly. And I said before that left versus right brain and the balance there. And I think it all correlates. And the power in your message is quite evident, and the power in the work that you do to both people who might lean towards the right and the left brain. Because if you are, for example, analytical and you prefer logic, well, you get to experience through the book, as I've said earlier, you get to actually experience how things are working and you're physically flicking from one section of the book to the next to see how it works and it kind of, it almost offers an insight into the way that your mind works as a result and how that you have come come to these conclusions and why more importantly you've come to these conclusions. Again, it's that de- demonstrative aspect which is so, so important I think in education. It's not good enough for me personally just to be told something. I want to experience that and I think we all we're all, I think that is the natural state for humanity. We, we have to experience something before it really sinks in. Otherwise, we're just repeaters of information and we don't actually get to that higher self because we're not experiencing it. We don't feel it. And information can be felt. People might think that I'm totally off the bat here, but I do think that information can be felt as well as just processed in a mind state and that's when we really get to the crux of the matter and what something is all about and that's what allows us to get into the zone in a sense is that something that you would agree with with regard to the new book david
1: well absolutely what you just said john i think is really important where you said information can be felt that is it it can be known in a different way i mean mr miyagi to just return to this I think, very helpful metaphor, doesn't say, okay, Daniel-san, when daniel Son says, why am I waxing your car all day? I'm just being your servant here. Cut this out. You know, I'm done with this. Mr. Miyagi doesn't say, okay, now I'm going to throw a punch at you. And he just says, show me wax on, wax off. And he throws the punch. He yells and he punches at him. And Daniel-san blocks it. Yeah. And he feels it. He feels it. He, he knows. He doesn't have to say, Mr. Miyagi never says, Now, do you believe that this uh will stop a punch? Do you do you do you understand why it works? He never asks any of those questions. Mm. He just punches at him. son feels that it works. He knows it in his bones now. He just experienced it personally and viscerally. Now he has knowledge. That's what the the Gnostics that's a very broad term because there were different schools of Gnostic thought, but gnosis means knowledge not belief it's not do you believe this block will work it's like do you know it Absolutely. have you experienced it have you felt it and I'll, and I'll say this too um, yeah so also, uh, there are other people I'm not claiming to be the first person to say that the myths are related to the stars in fact you can go back to actually I would say the dialogue of Plato in the Phaedrus, he actually gets into the. Uh, Plato has Socrates talking to Phaedrus uh, as they're walking along a river, and Phaedrus says, "Oh, do you think this is the place where the beautiful maiden was um, snatched up into the air by the wind god?" And uh, do you believe that, Socrates? And they talk about the nature of myth and what it's for. And Socrates says, "I don't get. I don't get tied up with those people who try and say that it's a historical event." I think they're going the wrong direction, but I don't have time for it because I'm trying to know myself. Like the Temple of Delphi says, know thyself. Well, I think that's a huge clue from Plato that the myths are not for thinking that they're literal. They are for the they're to help you know thyself. This to know who we are. And so what I'm saying here isn't new. There have been Um, You know, as I've I've referred to, Hamlet's Mill was a very, very seminal text for me uh, in going in this direction. In 1969, they were talking about, look at all these myths are related to the celestial cycles. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And um, we can talk more about, it's kind of a difficult book to read. They're not systematic about it. I'm trying to be very systematic here. but. The big question is, why? What's it all for? And they basically say, look, it's like this gigantic ruined architecture. It's kind of like, hey, we've got Stonehenge. We've got these ruins in the jungles in in Central America. We've got these other places over in Cambodia. We've got the Easter Island. It's like we're living inside of a vast ruin. Well, the same thing with the myths. We're living inside of this vast system that's kind of been covered over by the jungle vines but we can see there's something there that's their metaphor they kind of they say it's kind of like a painting where there's mist that covers a lot of uh, a lot of the features kind of like the chinese paintings where it's a mist painting and there's just a little here's a little mountain here and here's a little forest there and we don't even there's a lot of gaps um, well I, I i would say we don't know everything that these myths are trying to tell us but we can start to see it's very clear that they're based on the stars then the question is why is this just you know some people would say oh yeah yeah the the bible's based on the stars it was just you know primitive people trying to uh preserve astronomical knowledge or talk about the stars or worship first they worship the sun then they turned it into characters i don't think it's that at all i think the stars I think it's just like teaching Danielson karate. It's like we have to teach with something that's visible, but we're talking about the invisible realm. We're talking about these invisible concepts, like Roger Federer getting in touch with his higher self. Mm. You can't actually see that physical. So let's talk about the higher self. Let's say, let me say the higher self is like a charioteer. Okay, oh, that makes sense. That's interesting. So that's, I think the stars are talking about the, the spiritual realm or the other realm the invisible realm the the realm of the gods that's why um, whenever we're talking about the realm of the stars that's the part of human existence which is a real part of our universe and it actually connects all of us so once we start to see it this way I believe that we see wait a minute this connects the Bible and the ancient greek myths and the myths of the americas you know the native americans had their myths that actually connects them but if we take them literally we end up dividing because we say well wait a minute i worship jesus and you're talking about this maya god uh well we we have to we have to convert you over to ours um that's a mistake that comes from literalizing or externalizing what these are about. These are actually about each and every human being. I think it actually connects us, and I'd say it even connects us to the environment or the physical world. The universe is pervaded by this spiritual aspect that's in all the trees, that's in all the animals. Mm. This should actually connect us more to the universe when we realize wait the same spiritual realm that they're talking about with the stars it pervades each and every human being like you said as above so below it pervades actually every rock and every tree and every valley and every you know caterpillar and butterfly and deer and dog and cat and it's
0: supremely powerful and i think when people connect with that things transform on a micro level as well as on the macro level
1: yeah, absolutely, and I would say that actually, um, you know, uh, it, it, then we realize, hey, each and every person you ever meet is an infinite universe. Mm. You, you'll never, you'll never know everything that's going on inside that person. They are an infinite universe, and that's why violence is so wrong, because it's like smashing an infinite universe when you, you know, seek to destroy another human being. Um, I mean, there's so many levels that that the uh, things that they were telling us are so applicable to every single aspect of the here and now. But one thing I also wanted to say, something you um, said earlier that triggered um, this thought. I think it was when you were saying, you know, yeah, the mind is a tool. It can be, it can get away with us, but it's not. It's not like we want to get rid of it. Yeah, <laughs> We don't want to get rid of our left brain or whatever. I, that, I thought that was a good place to maybe bring in, and like you said, my own experience. I used to believe the Bible was literal. Well, in the Bible, we actually have a, a metaphor that's, I believe, very similar to Arjun and Krishna, Krishna being the higher self, in the story of Thomas, doubting Thomas. Yeah. See? Doubting Thomas... Um, and thomas is actually referred to in the scriptures that we have that were included in the canon canon uh, meaning the measuring the yardstick so the ones that there's actually like a cannon bone in a horse because it's about a yard long or i guess it's like a yardstick or maybe it's a foot long it's like a the cannon bone in a horse so canon means a measuring stick so the the texts that were included in what we today call the bible are called the canon the measuring they made it onto the measuring stick everything else got cut off but even in the scriptures that were included in the canon thomas is referred to as the twin he's got a greek um kind of last name or it's kind of like you know conan the barbarian he has an an appellation of the barbarian. Mm-hmm. Thomas is called Thomas the twin or Thomas Didymus, or Didymos. Uh Thomas the twin. Well, who's, he's a, who's he a twin of? Well, we don't actually know. There's nothing in the scriptures that tell us who he's a twin of, but there are some Gnostic texts. The Gnostics, again, being all about this, hey, knowledge. These things are for you to know something that you need to know. There's Gnostic books that were discovered, buried uh, in in Egypt. One of them is called the Gospel of Thomas. There's another one that's called the Book of Thomas. He was a very important figure. And in one of those texts, Jesus actually addresses Thomas and says, you're my twin. So that's who his twin is. Jesus is his twin. Mm. And, and if you're taking it literally, you would say, wait a minute. Uh, no, that's a problem. We got to cut that out because in the christmas story that we're all about to celebrate there's nothing about a twin there's nothing about they went into the inn then they went to the manger and then she gave birth to twins and we don't see little christmas scenes with two babies in the manger yeah so but if you're taking it literally you have a problem with that if you're saying what this is esoteric or it's it's a metaphor thomas as the twin to i believe that thomas is representing our You know our doubting mind all that left brain that we were talking about he's got a role there's a place for thomas and when thomas doubts um you're probably familiar with the story what happens all the disciples have seen jesus after the resurrection but not thomas he wasn't there he was out and they say hey we saw jesus and he says what i don't believe it what i gotta see it it's just i gotta feel it i gotta and and when when jesus finally appears to thomas does Jesus say to Thomas, oh, you bad, doubting disciple, you're the worst. I can't believe you doubted it. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't upbraid Thomas at all. He knows that Thomas is being, it's like our mind, the office assistant, is trying to be helpful. Thomas is doing his job of critically thinking or left brain doubting. Jesus doesn't say, don't be like that, but he does say, come here and feel and put your hand right here, put your finger right here yeah feel this exact same thing we were just talking about experience it for yourself now do you believe <laughs> And Thomas then says, he confesses he makes this confession he says, "My Lord and my God," which I believe it's the higher self has to rule over the doubting part of our mind we cannot make that our master (laughs) Mm. that shouldn't be the part of our there's a part of our brain that we need to get in touch with our mind our higher self that has to actually be above and that's when we meditate or do yoga or work on all these different things that have been given to humanity to help us in this regard that's how we can then when our teenage son says something to us that pushes our buttons And our mind wants to react like, wait a minute, you don't talk to me like that, kid. Mm. Uh, Our higher self can be detached and say, hold on, mind. Is that really the most helpful way to deal with this problem? I realize he's being disrespectful, but let's just step aside for a second. Because if you just fight fire with fire, you're just going to escalate the situation. Maybe we can try and, uh, you know, Thomas, hold on. Anyway. maybe I'm not expressing that perfectly clearly but what I'm saying is it's intensely practical but I believe that's what this scriptural passage is telling us the higher self so which one of us is Jesus and which one of us is Thomas which one of us is Arjun and which one of us is Krishna Mm -hmm. it's a trick question, you're both you've all these characters are about you as this human soul that has come down to experience this incarnate body You've got to get in touch with your, you've already got the Thomas inside of you. You've got to get in touch with the Christ in you. Mm,
0: Combine the head and the
1: heart. Right. You've got to, exactly. You've got, it's, you are, it's already there. You've got to get in touch with it. That's what um, should be driving the chariot, so to speak.
0: I think that's really profound. And as you were speaking there, David, I was just thinking the new age throws out so many self-help manuals. Um, the vast majority of which are about selling books and catchphrases and throwaway bits and pieces. They're actually of no use to anybody. I think that the work you're doing is the perfect self-help manual, provided people are willing to work on themselves because everybody wants this magic wand. Not everybody. A lot of people want a magic wand they can wave. So if I read such and such a book, maybe The Secret, um, everything's going to be fine and I'll have exactly what I want and things would be great. But... It doesn't really work like that, we have to work on ourselves and I think that the work you're doing is the perfect template to allow people to begin that work, albeit in a very different way from what they may be used to and I think that's what's required because at the moment things are not working on this planet and things are not working in a spiritual sense otherwise we wouldn't see the global events that we see, we wouldn't see the daily events in our own lives that we see and that we don't like and don't approve of. And For me, that is what I take from your work. And I think so many people around the world will do the same if they delve into it and approach it with an open mind and an open heart, because that's when they will become more than the sum of their parts. So as we wrap up on that note, how can people get their hands on the book, David? And how can they find out more through your website and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, thank you, John. I I appreciate that uh, sentiment you just expressed. And I'll say... You know, really, I'm not the teacher here. I think what I'm trying to point people to is these texts, these ancient sacred scriptures, whether they're the Bhagavad Gita or the ancient traditions of, you know, your people, if you're from the Hawaiian Islands, the stories of Maui, these messages are in there. You know, don't ask me what they mean. That's the so back to that metaphor. Just I'll tell you in a second how to get the books, but the metaphor at the beginning you know, that visitor from another country who speaks a language. What we want to be able to do is wouldn't it be great if we could go to that person ourselves instead of saying, Hey, thanks, buddy, for misinterpreting? uh, Instead of asking you what they say, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go right to that visitor. Well, these texts were given to humanity, we can go right to them to ask it. It's not like Don't ask Dave what he thinks. Yeah. Who cares what this is, what they say to me. (laughs) You may think I'm totally mixed up about that. Go ask the Greek myths for yourself. Go ask the Bible for yourself, what it's trying to say to you. And, and, um, and it'll tell you, (laughs) and I think it'll keep telling you, you know, at deeper and deeper levels all throughout your life. So um, I have a website, davidmatheson.com. In fact, it's really easy to find. If you just type in Matheson, and stars on any sort of a, a search, I think probably some stuff will come up um, that will get you to I've got a very extensive blog that's been going for many years, um, but uh, the the website davidmatheson.com, I've tried to kind of uh, give you some chapter headings that will send you to various blog posts over the years from different different subjects. And then when you get to that blog, there are links to find the book um I think I've linked up to Barnes and Noble and Amazon Mm -hmm. but if you're in you know the UK you probably have a different Amazon than we do or what I would say is hey support your local bookstore you can go to your bookstore and ask them to order it for you and I'm sure they'd be happy to do that you can even here's another way (laughs) you can go to your local library and say hey could you order this book? I think you should have it. Then you can read it. And then someone else can read it too, you know, cause it's in the library or go to your university and say, Hey, why don't you order this? You know, do you have a process for book recommendations? And then they, then they can order it and then you can read it for free. Um, I've got lots of stuff online that you can find uh, David com. And um, so it's, it's, it's distributed by Ingram, which is like one of the biggest distribution channels in the world. So I think any bookstore can order it. It might take them a few weeks to get it or, you know, I don't know how fast it'll get to your part of the world, but uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it from your local bookstore in your hometown. Well, I think people should do exactly that if they're in
0: any way inclined towards what we've been speaking about for the last 80 minutes or so. The book is called Star Myths of the World and How to Interpret Them, Volume One, and I can't wait for all the other volumes because there is a voluminous amount of work there. David Matheson is the author. It's been great having you back on Alchemy, David. Thanks so much for your time and the best of luck with your future work and with the book. I really look forward to speaking again in the future.
1: Thanks so much, John. I really appreciated the interview and your great insights and and uh and best of wishes with you, with your work and and your music and uh, thanks so much for this uh, platform that you've created because it's really uh, the question and answer like this that really helps uh, me to try and express what I'm trying to talk about couldn't do it without you well we'll
0: keep doing it I have the power you have the power we have the power David thanks so much once again
1: thanks John Alchemy Alchemy
2: Cause you're only a man.
0: you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy remember we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising free format and are very very grateful for any help that you can offer of course there's no fixed cost on the donations and every little bit helps so the price of a cup of coffee every month would go a huge way towards keeping us in the place that we need to be that being on air. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance, as I said, is hugely appreciated. Thank you to everybody for your recent help and support. We really couldn't do it without you. So then, until the next time, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy. Alchemy. Care. Will. Intelligence. Imagination.